We're going to be finishing up our long-term study in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, So we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 13, and I'll be reading verses 17 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know that this was not my first gig. I had several other jobs before even getting into ministry. One of my shortest jobs, but which seems to inspire the most stories, according to my kids, was the six or so months that I was the manager of a pizza restaurant. I was hired to wash dishes. Day two, I was the manager. Day three, I was given responsibility to count and store the money and lock up the store at the end of the night. So on my third night of employment, I was shown how to do all those things I needed to do. And then the, the general manager you know, thanked me for giving him his first night off in two years. And he left. And when it came time to close up at about 1230 you know, that night, I counted up the money and put it in the bag and walked to the safe only to realize I had not been given the combination to the safe. Never mind, I could hide the money for the night, you know, frozen assets. Um, yep. And, uh, and so, you know, having done everything that needed to do, I, I went to the door and realized I had not been told the security code to arm the alarm system. That's okay, I would just lock it, except I didn't have a key. Okay. At which point I had to call the general manager and wake him up on his first night off and let him know. And I, what I told him was, You did not equip me to do any of the things that you asked me to do. And that's that's one of the great lessons I learned in delegation. If you're going to delegate responsibility, you also have to make sure they have what they need to do the responsibility they've been given. Now, what does that have to do with Hebrews? Well, the book of Hebrews, seen from one perspective, is a list of responsibilities It is a call to obedience, and especially the word that we see again and again is endurance. We are called to endure, to persevere, to not give up. And that is a weighty and a heavy responsibility. And if we were to just leave it at that call to obedience, the Christian could rightly say, Lord, you have called me to do something that I am unable to do. You have not equipped me to do what you require of me. But in these last verses of Hebrews, the author makes sure that we see and understand that all that God has called us to do, he equips us to do. He equips us to endure, to serve him faithfully, and to do so, three of the things that we see that he gives us here. He gives us shepherds, 
He gives us each other, and he gives us ability. I want to look at each of those. The first, he gives us shepherds. And as we look at these verses, I would suggest that to many of us, this first gift that he gives to make us able to endure doesn't seem like much of a gift, but instead perhaps might seem like a burden. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Two things that don't play well in our current cultural moment. Obedience to leaders, whom we are taught to mistrust and doubt and question, and submission to anyone, because who are you that I should follow you instead of myself? And this challenge is made all the more difficult by uh, the sad and lamentable unworthiness and even sin of many who do end up in leaders as leaders in churches. I say these words knowing that a number of you in this room have probably been burned by leadership in churches in the past. But just as the biblical command to children to obey their parents or to citizens to submit to their governing authorities, those commands don't compel us to obey and to submit to those who harm us, whose leadership is used to abuse us and to lead us contrary to God's will and God's way. In the same way, the command to obey and submit to church leaders does not justify abusive and ungodly leadership in churches. We are not called to follow others when they sin against us. No, it is instead leaders like those described in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The leaders that the author of Hebrews has in mind, the leaders he's calling us to obey and submit to are those who lived exemplary lives worthy of imitation. Those whose faith we should imitate. Those who inspire So in the church, we see that God gives his people the blessing of shepherd leadership. So in verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That phrase, keeping watch, means we're not talking about the lazy supervisor who is just keeping an eye on things or the down-to-business person who's just trying to run a tight ship. No, it's a word that means wakefulness, diligence, being on guard like a shepherd watching over a flock of sheep that could at any moment be attacked by a wolf. The Bible calls church leaders shepherds because shepherds don't just keep an eye on the sheep. Shepherds take care of the ones that they lead. And in the same way, the leaders of God's church are supposed to take care of the people of the church, not just organize them, Not just supervise them, not just command and direct them, not just tell them things, but to take care of them, to shepherd them. Paul describes it this way in Acts 20, speaking to a group of elders, leaders of churches. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the the flock, because you're shepherds, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Describing as shepherds means, what does a shepherd do to care for the sheep? You defend them, you feed them, you protect them, you nurture them, you watch out for them, you lead them away from danger and towards safety. Now, the way that applies to us is that a Christian is to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
We are to be made a disciple is what the scripture says. We don't just believe and then go on with our merry way, not changing anything. We are called to follow Christ, to, to live as he lived. If anyone claims to live in him, he must walk as Jesus did, the apostle said. And that task of making you into a disciple is not left to you as an individual to accomplish. Just as we would not expect a child with no musical background to walk up to a piano and teach themselves how to play a Rachmaninoff piano concerto, it's just not going to happen. In the same way, we don't expect a new believer, a young Christian, to on their own train and teach themselves how to follow Christ. God has entrusted that work to the body of Christ under the leadership and watchful care of the leaders of the church. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. I, I joke with people at times, that's my job description. My job description is to equip you for ministry. That's what the shepherds and teachers of God's flock are called to do. We are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How are you to mature in Christ? What is the process God has given whereby you grow into maturity as you follow Jesus? It is under the equipping and shepherding care of the church. This is not a matter of convenience or coincidence. Oh, hey, I, I, I kind of like going to church, so that's why I'm going to go. No, it's a matter of necessity and design, according to Scripture. God has called for the church to have such leaders in order to shepherd his flock. In 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, speaking to elders, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but because you are willing, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but rather being an example to the flock. And so elders and church leaders, they shepherd at God's command, and therefore, they are accountable to him. Church leaders must answer to God for their leadership. As, as it said in Hebrews 13, I forgot to put a slide in there, but if you can see in your Bibles it says that they keep watch over the flock as those who must give an account. Church leaders will have to give an account for how they have taken care of God's flock. Not just for how they've managed the budget, not just for how they've you know, kept watch over the facilities or, or other details, but how they've cared for the people entrusted to them. James 3, we are warned that not many should become teachers because we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who lead and teach God's people are held to a higher standard because they've been entrusted with God's most precious treasure, His children. If I loan you my lawnmower and you return it to me broken and unusable, I'll, I'll be disappointed, but... It's, it's just a piece of machinery. If I let you watch my pets while I'm on vacation and, and they come back in poor condition or not at all, I'll be sad and probably a little angry, but, it's, but if you watch my kids, my standard and my expectation and the accountability towards which I hold you goes through the roof. 
because you are watching my treasure. And likewise, those who, who are called to leadership in the church are entrusted with God's greatest treasure, his children, and for that they will be held accountable. And so Christians, God has called you to follow, to endure, to grow, to be faithful, to be bold, and in order to equip you for that task, one of the things he has given you is shepherds, leaders who will watch over you, care for you, call you out when you are in sin, Maybe hold your toes to the fire if you are persisting in sin and disobedience. Giving you resources to do the hard things that you need to do. Helping you when you are discouraged. Being present with you in difficulty. And we are in turn called to follow the leaders that God has put over us. Follow our shepherds because they are one of God's gifts to help us. And because they're appointed by God to do this work, we have a responsibility as well. You have a responsibility not to ignore or merely tolerate the leaders God has given you, but to obey and submit to them in a way that makes their task a joy. As verse 17 says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How do you obey and submit to your leaders in a way that that lets them work with joy and not with groaning. I'd suggest you know, some of the ways are not demanding things go your way. You know, not being the backseat or passenger seat driver who's slamming on the imaginary brake and gripping the handle and like, hey, could you go a little faster maybe? You know, not insisting on your way. Not obeying with arms crossed and sour face. Well, I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. And that's part of it. But let me tell you what really brings joy to an elder's heart. When we gather together and are praying for God's people and are able to share stories of how you're growing, of how you're responding to God's word, of how you're changing, of how you're overcoming sin and addiction, of how you're reconciling when there's pain, of how things are changing because God's work is bearing fruit in your lives. That makes our task a joy. But I would also ask, how is it possible for anyone to obey this verse, this command of Scripture, not suggestion, but command of Scripture while standing apart from and outside of the local church. How can you obey and submit to leaders if you will not be among them? We're not talking about vague leaders on the internet and authors you admire and preachers you like to listen to their podcasts. They can't, keep, they can't fulfill this verse for you because they are not being held to account for your growth. There is no pastor, no teacher, no leader, no podcaster who is accountable for you except the ones of this church, if you are a member of this church. So I urge you, if you, if you were standing off from the church, if you were standing outside the church and not placing yourself under the call and command and shepherding care of the church, I urge you to live in obedience to Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And find yourself in obedience and submission to the leaders who will be held accountable for you. Another resource or gift even that God gives us that enables us to endure and persevere just as he gives us shepherds is he gives us each other. We see this in these verses not so much by statement and command but by example. Look in verse 18 to begin with. He says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on, but it, it would seem from the context that the author of this letter is probably imprisoned or in some way in trouble for his testimony of the gospel. 
And so this author of this letter who knows the Bible deeply and well, who teaches and who leads others and who has authority to instruct others in the gospel, takes a moment to humble himself and to lean on his sisters and brothers and say, please pray for me. I need you. I need the people of God. I am not so learned and mature and strong that I don't need God's people to support me. And then he says, look, we want to do the right thing. We, we have a clear conscience. We want to act honorably. We don't want to bring shame to the gospel. And so in the next verse, he says, I also want you to pray for me because I want to be restored to you sooner. He doesn't just want to get out of his jam that he's in. He wants to be restored to the people of God. He wants to be together with them again. But look at the final verses, 23 through 25, those greetings that we tend to skim past at the end of New Testament letters. You should know that our brother Timothy's been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Pick up on the tone here. This is, this is not a business correspondence. This is a personal, personal letter. And the intent is, is to connect God's people together. He's passing along greetings from one church to another. He's reaching out to people he cares about. And he's calling on them to be, uh, to be greeting one another. There is to, we are not made to do this alone. That's the point here. We were not made to do this alone. We were made, we were designed to need each other and to be blessed by one another. Ecclesiastes 4 is a passage you often hear at weddings, but it's not about marriage. Listen to these verses. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, that's not, I mean, it's nice to, to bring that up at weddings, but it's about our need for other people in our lives. We cannot and must not make the journey of discipleship alone. We will not endure if we do that. So when the Lord declared in Genesis 2, verse 18, that it's not good that man should be alone. Yes, he was talking about the creation of Eve as a helper for Adam, but he, it wasn't singleness. It wasn't being unmarried that was a problem. It was solitariness, being alone that the Lord said was not good. It wasn't singleness because otherwise Jesus was in a not good state for his entire life. No, it is solitariness, being without people, separating ourselves. That is what is not good. And so in order to equip us to endure, God gives us each other. Needing other people, needing other people in your life is not weakness. It is by design. Hear that. Needing other people. And some of us have struggled with this and have been taught the opposite of this our whole lives. But needing other people is not weakness. It is God's design for you. You were made to need other people. And when Christians are together, it leads to encouragement and it leads to strengthening. Listen to Paul as he's writing to the Romans in Romans 1. And, and don't go past the, verse, the next verse until I tell you. Starting with Romans 1, 11. 
Paul's writing to the Romans and he says, I long to see you in order that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Okay, we're talking about Paul, the apostle, and he's saying to the Romans, when I get there, I'm going I'm to impart spiritual gifts to you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to encourage you. My presence is going to be a blessing to you. And that makes absolute sense to us. Yes, Paul, apostle, leader, mature, godly man. Yes, he will strengthen those weak and young people in the church in Rome. But no, then Paul goes on to say in the next verse, what I'm saying is I want us to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul's saying, I'm not the only one who's going to be encouraged, who's going to be encouraging others. You're going to encourage me. I am going to be blessed by you. I am going to be strengthened when I'm in your presence. You know, I experienced this uh, in a way living overseas for so many years. When you live in another culture, you start to feel very much abnormal and very much like you're in an upside down world, especially the more different the culture is for you. And even if you grow to love and appreciate the culture you're living in and you learn the language and you get in the habit of following their customs, you still always feel, especially if you look different, you feel like an outsider. Like there's just something different about you. You don't get the jokes. You don't share all the same basic values. There's history that you don't have. But there's those special times when living overseas, like July 4th or Thanksgiving Day, when the Americans would gather together. And we'd go to like a place that had a version of hamburgers or hot dogs. And we would gather together and we'd all speak the same language. And we'd listen to the music that we all knew and loved. And for a few brief moments, you don't feel like an outsider anymore. You're reminded what normal really is. And suddenly the world that you've been living in is like, oh right, that's, that's abnormal for me. This is what normal is. This is how I'm supposed to be. For the people of God, that's what happens when we are together, whether Sunday morning or throughout the week. We live our lives in an upside-down world where things are not normal. The things that are valued and believed and cherished and pursued by the world around us are not normal. And when we gather together, we are reminded of what is normal and what is good and what is right. And that strengthens us and encourages us. Hey, I'm not crazy. Hey, I'm not the only one. Oh, hey, that is how we're supposed to be. We need each other for that reason. We need to be deeply, deeply connected to the community of God's people if we're going to have the strength to persevere in the Christian life. So what we see at the end of this letter, which in fact we see at the end of most New Testament letters, is, is a reflection of that sense of need and priority. The desire to connect with other people, to make sure the relationships are still there. Desiring the presence of God's people and seeking the comfort from the relationships that we have and making it a priority to maintain the connection. And as verse 22 shows, listening to one another as well. I, I chuckle every time I read this verse. After 13 long chapters, eight months of sermons, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Briefly? Really? That's brief? Okay. Maybe he was reading the Psalms before that or something. I don't know. But the point is, he's saying, look, none of you needs to be so proud and independent that you're not going to bear with the words that I have to say and, and derive something from them. This word of exhortation and encouragement, words that are supposed to spur you along in what you're called to do. None of us is so mature that we don't need other people. None of us is so learned and so godly that we don't have things to draw from others. 
We all need each other. And so one of the gifts that God gives his people to equip us to endure is that he gives us each other. And like we saw with leaders and shepherds, this gift of God is not coincidental or optional. It is by design. Our getting involved in each other's lives, our being present together, it's not a matter of preference or circumstance. It is the way God designed us to be. He made you to need your brothers and sisters. He made them to need you. And he created us to find blessing and strength in that. The last thing we see, he gives us shepherds, he gives us each other. Lastly, we see in these verses that he gives us ability. You know, when, in the culture when this letter was being written, uh, letters would end with greetings and then a blessing, usually in the name of whatever God or, or whoever that you served. You know, I pray that you know, the Zeus would watch over your household, or I pray that your commerce and your business would be successful. Uh, the blessing that ends this letter is one that you probably, if you've been here, you've probably heard it at the end of one of our services. We use it as a benediction. And I love having a few minutes now to unpack it a bit because what I love about this benediction, this blessing here, is that it shows us how God gives us ability. It begins by describing God as the God of peace. And that's not just a throwaway phrase. To the Jewish reader and, and the Hebrews that received this were Jewish readers. The word peace in any language would call to mind the Jewish word, the Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom translates into English as peace, but the concept is way much bigger than we tend to mean when we say peace. When we say peace, we mean a lack of conflict. Nobody's fighting. But the word shalom means wholeness, completeness, everything the way it was designed to be. Your physical health, your job, your family, your relationships, everything is as it should be. There's nothing uncomfortable, nothing broken, nothing sad. It is shalom. It is peace. And so in verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, the God of shalom, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's a whole mouthful there. Describing God as the God of shalom. And though you experience trials today, his goal, his intention is shalom. And he's going on to describe how is that shalom going to come about? How does the peace of God come to be? He says the God of peace who brought again from the dead. Jesus, the great shepherd, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The main thing to catch there, and there's a lot of theology we could unpack there, the main thing is that, in, that Jesus, in laying down his life, which is what the great shepherd does, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In, in laying down his life, Jesus fulfills the eternal covenant by the blood of the eternal covenant. That word covenant, we, we use it a lot to describe the agreement it's, it's an agreement between parties. And for those that haven't heard this before, in the ancient Near East, in these cultures, uh, when, when you would make an agreement, we see this not just in the Bible, but in many other ancient documents. When two kings, two nations, two business leaders, two individuals, you would make a, a binding, serious agreement. And you would seal that not by signing your name, but by making a sacrifice so that there was blood. And what that signified was, if I break this covenant, this agreement, if I don't keep my part of it, may I be like this animal that died. May my blood be shed. 
Now, the problem is that God makes a covenant to be God to his people, to love them, save them, bless them, care for them. And we covenant to be his people, to follow him, to be in his image, to imitate him, to build his kingdom. We don't uphold our end of the covenant, which means our blood needs to be shed. And what God does is he steps in and he upholds the covenant on our behalf and pays the price on our behalf. And so the blood of the eternal covenant is the blood of Jesus that takes our place in punishment. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd, gives up his life in place of his people. And because he is a faithful and sinless shepherd, death has no power over him and God raises him from the dead. So that's what this whole preamble, this whole preface is. The God of peace who raised from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's the gospel. You were saved because the good shepherd died in your place and he rose again and he lives forever. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Now by this, I'll reach my home. Now by this, I'll overcome by the blood of the eternal covenant. But that's not all his resurrection does. Verse 21 goes on to say, May this God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The work of God's shalom, the bringing of peace and wholeness to all things, did not end at the cross, and it did not end at the empty tomb. The work of God's peace continues through the people that he saves. This was the expressed purpose of God's salvation in Christ. Look at Titus 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God saved you, redeemed you from lawlessness to make you his people, a people who are zealous for good works, who are eager to do God's will, want to do what God wants them to do, who want to bring about God's great shalom, his great peace. God saves you and the result is he sends you, commissions you to do the work of expanding his peace. But how, how are we able to do that? We do that. Listen here. We do that because the same power that God showed in raising Jesus from the dead, that same power is also at work in his people to give them the strength to do everything he calls us to do. Hear this again. The same power that God showed in raising Jesus from the dead, the very same power is also at work in his people to give us the strength to do everything he calls us to do. He gives us ability. Listen to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is a prayer that the church, we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? The might of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. 
that same power. So that's why the author of Hebrews says, and now may the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead, may he be the one who equips you with everything good for doing his will so that you can do what pleases God. Consider that. The same power that brought Christ up from the dead is at work in you. And I'm not, I'm not addressing that to the particularly holy, the particularly mature, the ones who already have it all together, the ones who know enough doctrine, the ones who've been around the block and have followed Jesus faithfully. I'm addressing that to each and every one of you who is in Christ. The power of God's resurrecting power is at work in you to make you able to do everything good. He gives us leaders, shepherds to watch and guide us. He gives us each other to encourage and strengthen us. But the amazing thing is that God himself gives us ability to do what he asks. And that ability should give you confidence. Confidence like Larry Bird had in 1988 when he showed up at the NBA three-point competition where he would be competing against other NBA stars to see who could most consistently sink three-point shots. And Larry Bird showed up before the game, walked into the locker room, looked at these other players, and said, so who's coming in second? I mean, that, that's swagger right there. That borders on arrogance. But the, the point is he had confidence because he knew what he was capable of. And then he went out there and proved it. Hey, people of God, do you know what you are capable of? I think many of you don't because you don't believe that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in and through you to make you able to do anything God has called you to do. Do you know what you are capable of? Is there any demonic force? Is there any addiction? Is there any temptation? Is there any cultural power or influence that is stronger than the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead? When you fail to believe that you are able to overcome these things and live in obedience, then you are believing something is more powerful than God. That's blasphemy. You have the right to the same level of confidence when you approach the life of obedience to God. And this is possible because it's not you, it's Christ in you working. A work of grace. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on the amazing and unbelievable things that God asks of his people in 2 Corinthians 3, says, hey, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to do this, to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency, our ability, it's, it's from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. My brothers and sisters, that promise is not limited to the extra mature, to the older saints, to the studious, to the theologically inclined, to the officers that have been elected, to the extroverted, to the wealthy, to the well-liked, to the attractive, to the successful, to the moral, or any other category that you would look and say, hey, that's not me. This can't be talking about me. I'm talking to you kids. I'm talking to the kids. I'm talking to the new believers. I'm talking to those struggling with mental illness and addiction. I'm talking to those fighting, this, to fighting despair. I'm talking to everyone who is in Christ by grace. Hear these words and don't take them lightly. As a child of God, you are always able to do what is good and right. Always able 
Because God makes you able. God has made you sufficient. Let that sufficiency make you bold in your obedience. Could I get... Yeah, there it is. We've entitled this series that we're finishing right now before your very eyes. We've entitled our study of Hebrews, Jesus is Greater. And the reason we chose that phrase is because it captures what we saw from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. As, as it was being written to believers struggling under persecution, struggling to hang in there and looking to go somewhere else for safety and security and encouragement. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is greater than anything else you can look at. And because he's writing to primarily Jewish Christians, he's looking at the history of the Old Testament and showing how Jesus far surpasses anything that came before. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua. I mean, you know, I'm just going through chapter by chapter what we've seen here. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the promised land. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the Levites. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than your enemies. He's greater than your temptations. Jesus is greater. And we come back around to that message in these last verses. Because it's not just that Jesus is greater and therefore you stick with him. That's true. But listen, this Jesus who is greater than anything else you can hope in, anything else you can trust in, anything else you can look to for strength, this Jesus works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He is your inheritance. He is the gift of God to you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can endure. You can obey. You can persevere into maturity because God has given you everything you need when he gave you Christ. He gave you himself. Not just when Christ died for you. He didn't just give you his death. His spirit works in you. Always. You have Jesus, you have everything you need and more. That message was given to struggling Christians, Hebrews, 2,000 years ago. And it is the same today. You need it just as much as they did. The message that Jesus is greater than anything else and you have it. You have him. Whatever your struggle, whatever your fear, whatever opposition, whatever doubt, whatever difficulty, Jesus is greater and he is in you. He is given to you by God. Therefore, endure. Therefore, be patient. Therefore, obey. Therefore, persevere. Therefore, rejoice. What gift of grace is Jesus your Redeemer? Once enemies now reconciled in him. You can endure, yet not you, but Christ in you. Let's prepare our hearts to sing that with joy this morning. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ, all we need. Thank you that what you have called us to do, though great and far beyond our capacity, you have given us all we need to fulfill what you have asked of us. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, we have resurrection. In him, we have the ability to obey. And you have given us one another to remind and strengthen and encourage us in that fact. And you've given us our shepherds, our leaders in the church to watch over us, to keep us safe, and to continue to equip us through your good word. You are so good to us. We have no lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. We thank you in our shepherd Jesus' name. Amen.